I would love to talk about witch trials and horror, if that is something that Ooh. is that okay, good. Oh my god. Did you see the recent movie The Unholy? No. Oh my god. That's like the perfect intersection of witch trial and like horror movie and religious horror just like all overlapping there so sorry i'm just warning that's probably gonna get brought up that's okay (laughs) i'm excited for it i just googled it and said the unholy 2021 did it come out this year no wait uh you know what i might have seen it this year honestly 2021 is a blur already but um, it was, I saw it during pandemic times. So it's got Jeffrey Dean Morgan in it. Who the hell is Jeffrey Dean Morgan? He's the guy from Supernatural, but also in uh, The Walking Dead. He plays, he plays the dad in Supernatural. Oh, girl, it did come out in 2021. Damn. <laughs> it was okay. April. Wow. That really wasn't that long ago. It feels like I saw it an age ago. Anyway, that's, real life, though. that's on me. No, I'm excited for this. Um, witch trials and horror. So CJ, I don't know if you've heard my PhD pitch, uh, but I, I shop this around all of the time with smart people. Mm. An idea that I have for a PhD project is to look at the pastoral ethics in the Salem witch trials, or oh, to at wow. least like look at the role of the pastors. Um because, like, you have everybody from, like, the local parish minister. Because, like, the Salem Witch Trials start as this, like, salary dispute, <laughs> essentially, over, like, the minister's salary. You have, like, this character. You have, like, pastors, like, the next town over. You have a former pastor of the congregation who is, like, ends up being the, like, warlock ringleader who gets executed. You have celebrity pastors who are weighing in on it. Like, there's a lot of pastors involved just in, like, the Salem story. Mm. So I have been thinking about that and just very interested in that because I feel like and maybe it's because most of like the popular culture around it, like for us in our generation starts and ends with like the crucible, right? It's either the crucible or there were real witches at Salem. uh, And those are your two options. And neither of those really deals with the idea, like with the role of like what pastors could have done or could have done differently. So anyway, that's my idea that I shop around. But I feel like those themes of like incredulousness uh, versus um, versus really wanting to believe that something supernatural is happening, like those happen in real life in the Salem Witch Trials. And there just aren't enough skeptics around to like save lives. But like it's it, it really struck me as we were talking about horror and how like that can be a big theme in horror that that like that thing that we're struggling with in everyday life of like what do we believe and what do we not believe in this like new post uh, enlightenment cosmology that we're existing in um like how how that is mirrored in our fiction and i don't know that there's anything to do with any of that or if you just have like other thoughts about which like which trials and horror in general but that's my like opening kind of salvo that's what that's what i'm thinking with this yeah. I think I think that's so interesting. That's first of all, that's um one thing I did not know about the witch trials. I went to school in Boston for 2 years, went to Salem, did the tourist thing, and not once 
where it was, or did I learn about this like pastor drama going on in the background? Oh, it's, and I don't think that I'm like making that up. Like the, cause the bewitching start in the parsonage. It's mm. like the pastor's ward and one of their, one of his kids, like his niece and his ward or somebody start like being, they don't want to say possessed cause they don't want it to be demons, but they start being right. bewitched. And like, it really, they have been in this like huge salary dispute over like, is does wood count as part of the compensation package? And like, the pastor had not been paid <laughs> because they hadn't like been able to like get all of the villagers to help to pay the salary. There's wow. this big dispute between Salem Village and Salem Town too, because Salem Village wanted to like run their own things and it just didn't they uh everybody hated them <laughs> so they mm. weren't like willing to let them do it but yeah like that's kind of that's kind of how everything starts out like it starts from this like conflict over how are we going to pay our pastor that's amazing and and to think that so many pastors were involved and yet not a single one could <laughs> could i guess intervene in a helpful way that wasn't right. that wasn't like inflaming the situation is um kind of astonishing but I guess um, maybe perhaps not surprising for um, Puritans in in the frontier U.S. Yeah, that's kind of my my big take on on it is that like if there was if there were even like two pastors who wanted to to say maybe let's slow it down on the hangings, friends. Like, <laughs> but but no, like. I, it's also in the middle of like Massachusetts getting its new charter from England um, mm. and like this big changeover in like governor leadership and the governor really doesn't want to deal with it. The new governor really doesn't want to deal with it, but the lieutenant governor really does. And mm. it's uh yeah, it is, it is so much more than like this, like these little accusations, like because it becomes this like huge problem in in massachusetts it becomes this very political thing as well yeah, uh, it's yeah it sounds like it's part of this much larger political drama that's going on in a mm -hmm. funny way um but i think i think what really strikes me about the witch trials about um the pastors involved um is uh, kind of the, the nature of religious communities um, and the ways in which those, um, the attitudes that they foster, um, I, when a really popular, I guess, uh, subgenre of horror film is kind of like the cult horror film. Um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, I'm thinking of the movie Apostle, uh, which is, yes. have you seen it? Netflix? Go check I it have. Out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so like this um, insular religious community, um, or even like we could do uh, The Wicker Man, um, love no love Nicholas Cage and bees, you know. Right. Um, <laughs> so not the bees. <laughs> <laughs> these um, you know insular religious communities are you know frequently sources of horror. Um, and I, I think that speaks to kind of these attitudes that we see, um, cropping up maybe in the Salem witch trials, 
Um, although it's like you said, it's a little more complex than just the religious community kind of like going off the deep end and not having um, an outside check. It's sort of influenced by these larger political problems, by um, the drama going on just uh, within, between Salem Village, Salem Town, between the the pastors, between, you know, celebrity pastors who are weighing in. Um, so that might speak to a more complex and um, less, maybe less insular or mm-hmm. insular, maybe in a, in a different way type of um, religious, religious drama unfolding. Um, but what, uh, what this reminded me of immediately was um, uh, the 2021 film, The Unholy. Um, because the, the opening sequence, uh, it, the kind of gist of the film is that, um, there's, uh, this small Catholic parish in, um, I believe in Massachusetts, uh, and, um, a, a girl there, she's, uh, I believe fully deaf, um, and, she sees a vision of um, the Virgin and um, miraculously has her hearing restored and uh, comes to find out that uh, this vision she has of the Virgin is not really the Virgin Mary. Um, It's in fact um, kind of the ghost of this executed witch who is masquerading as Mary. Um, and kind of performing miracles in Mary's name um, in order to kind of garner worship from um, the locals. And, you know, she's strengthened by worship. Um, And ultimately, I think the the goal is that she would, uh, you know, become become a doorway for for Satan to enter the world, you know, bring about, uh, you know, the Antichrist in some respect. But um, the film opens with this, really um upsetting uh execution scene where um we have you know a little mob of puritans um executing a witch and the the camera is placed um a first person um from the perspective of this woman being executed so um they cover her face with a mask um, which is it's nailed physically nailed into her face. Um, oh, yes, yeah. it's, it's super grotesque and um, an upsetting scene. Uh, that and they open with it too, like right out the gate. It's like wow, it's, it's stomach turning. But um, and then she's uh, lit on fire, which not time not time accurate. They're not burning witches in right. Massachusetts. Um, but uh, she's. The, the idea being that she was like exceptionally bad um, mm. and therefore deserving, I guess, of, of being burned. Not that that was how they decided on capital punishment styles that had to do with like uh, religious offenses versus like civil criminal things like that. But at any rate, um, so it, it's uh, this kind of horrible execution scene is set up um to provoke sympathy with the executed woman you know because it's like this horrible violence being inflicted on her Mm -hmm. um by these this like mob of white 
men um, dressed like pilgrims. And like, I think the automatic, um, you know, it's like playing off of the sympathy that we have um, for uh, victims of the witch trials. Uh, And it's eventually kind of turned on its head, like, actually, they were right. Actually, they knew how bad she was. And their, um, you know, a reaction was proportionate, in fact, even though, um, you know, ostensibly, you know, horrible to watch. Yeah. Who that's um like that that actually pushes the button of like a very deep fear that I have that like mm. will send me into a tailspin that is what if the evangelicals are actually right? Um oh man. Doesn't it but like oh I was having a conversation, I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before, having a conversation with a friend in Scotland who was Baptist, not fully evangelical, but like very devotedly Baptist. Um, mm-hmm. and I just talked about how unkind it was to like threaten people with the idea of hell when they're just like out here living their lives. Uh and my friend was like, But isn't the kinder thing to like to scare them away from eternal conscious punishment? Like if hell is real, isn't the kinder thing to do whatever you can to prevent people from going to hell? And I like what one, what a bananas argument, but like also it's really common, but also like, what if they're right? Like that, that is my fear is that like at the end of life that there is actually a hell and I'm actually going to it. And like all those sons of bitches who scared me all of my life were the ones who were actually right. Like, Ooh, I can't handle that. <laughs> no, no, neither can I. That, that is, that does keep me up at night. That is the true, the true scary season. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, then it's funny to me that like somebody else can take, can take that idea and like use it as, as part of like a horror movie that like, oh, the, the people who are wrong on so many fronts were actually right about like this one thing. <laughs> like there are scary things out there and we need to be aware of them. I think I'm trying to think of, uh, I feel like that is, um, in some ways, at least an undercurrent in a lot of, a lot of horror. (laughs) Like, uh, we really don't want to face like some, some horrible reality, but that it like asserts itself. But I, I don't quite have, don't quite have a good example. I don't know. I think that also speaks to the horror kind of horror of belief. Um, this, um, the, I guess, high stakes nature of um, these uh, decisions we have to make about what to believe, what's ethical to believe, um, how how we can ethically hold certain beliefs and um, what certain beliefs demand of us, uh, I guess, vis-a-vis proselytizing. Mm-hmm. And things like that. Hmm. 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 Yeah, the ethics of belief. I, I find that I find that to be uh, an interesting thing to think about, CJ. Like, what is because I I, I think there are things that um I don't know. I think there are things that are moral to believe in, and like the belief believing in them itself is a moral and good thing. Um, or maybe to believe in like their opposite is immoral, right? Like sometimes Joe and I have said on 
in an episode um, that at least I think I, Joe Joe hasn't been like I agree, so I don't want to put the words in Joe's mouth, but like I think it's it's morally correct to believe uh, in hope for the sake of children, mm-hmm. you know, and to believe like like I think it's I think there's something immoral about telling children that the world is meaningless. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's something immoral about that um, or, or in believing that it's meaningless, you know, uh, uh, for the sake of kids, you know what I'm saying? Like, like there's mm-hmm. something, there's something about that that I think is true. Um, but like, I don't know how many other beliefs I would say are ethical to believe in, right? Like, you know, or, or it would be unethical or immoral or, or, you know, whatever to disbelieve in something. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Yeah. Well, I wonder about that because that's, you phrased it this time a little differently than, than when we last talked about it. Um, Cause it wasn't the, like that everything is meaning it's, it's immoral to believe that everything is meaningless uh, when you're talking to kids. The last time it was like, it's immoral to like give up hope that things can improve. Oh, that's true. Yeah. That is how I put it. And, and, but I feel like that's a, that's an important distinction because like there, if, even if like the only meaning that is, if you, even if you believe that the only meaning that is real is the meaning that we make, um, like, I don't think that's, it's immoral to believe that. And, and like, give that in like some moral sense to kids um because then that gives them the the impulse to like go help people and go try to improve things and like to then put good into the world um but i do think it would be immoral to just like to just give them like ecclesiastes and like everything is vanity right (laughs) like that's not that's that's not gonna shape a mentally healthy kid i don't think (laughs) I agree. We shouldn't let children read the Bible. <laughs> it's too radical. <laughs> we have a, there's a librarian at Wesley who uh, every once in a while, she'd be like, you know what? We really should have not translated this thing into English. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel that sometimes. Um, yeah. Yeah. Like I, and I think maybe that's, like in there's a sense in which kind of since the enlightenment we've all been stuck in this crisis of of faith or crisis of rationality um where we're all trying to figure out like okay what's the new norm because there are still unexplainable things there are still like things that are beyond the bounds of our knowing and the question is like are they beyond the bounds of our knowing for always or are they beyond the bounds of our current knowing like that question of whether Mm. like were ancient gods really just aliens with more advanced technology you know like that the the kind of worldview that like thor in the marvel cinematic universe has Mm -hmm. um But I think that, like, that's very much a live question, like, because we are always going to bump up against things that are that um, defy our power to explain right now. But is that uh, a right now? Is this a God of the gap situation or is that a like perpetual? There are are things that are supernatural or preternatural or whatever. Mm. 
That's a good, I'm, uh, as you said that, I'm thinking once again about the Salem witch trials and kind of the absurdity of um, trying to try witches. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, that's very, uh, calling it absurd is, I guess, um, a very 21st century thing uh, to do, but um, taking, taking people with magic powers to court to, you know, punish them under the law um, or to suss out, even if they, they have these magical powers in the first place is um, something legal systems seem uniquely unequipped (laughs) to do. Right. Um, As I think evidenced by the sort of bizarre um, methods that they came up with for that were, you know, the, the height of scientific inquiry. Um, dunking women in ponds to just you know determine how magical they were um or like looking for the i I don't our witches spots like where they would poke you and this is a place that you don't feel or whatever yeah exactly so that um that seems to me like um something I'm I'm thinking of uh, specifically. This is like not not quite to the point, but it's um, it keeps coming to mind. John Carpenter has this movie um, called "In the Mouth of Madness." Uh, that's about um, a. I think it's an insurance fraud investigator uh, mm-hmm. who's the main character. And uh, he's sent to hunt down this um, uh, very popular um, fiction writer, kind of a Stephen King type figure who's gone missing uh, while writing um, a book. So he and the uh, the author's um, kind of editor, publisher, agent, so such and such, they have some uh, professional relationship like that uh they go off to hunt down the author and they end up um in uh they find him in a town that doesn't exist except in uh this man's stories it's a fictional town like kind of like a la an hp lovecraft type Mm. of town um and uh this town is kind of like created by and afflicted by um, this man's fiction. This man's fiction brings it to life. And um, mm-hmm. so the uh, the investigator is trying to, um, you know, I guess impose reason on this, um, on this town, on the events in the town. Um, on uh, the author himself, who is, uh, you know, um, creating with like this uh, godlike power, who's um, literally kind of tearing the fabric of reality um, and uh, re-sewing it together in um, eldritch and uh, wrong ways. Uh, and kind of... Um, I guess in that respect, the ways in which uh, investigation 
enlightenment standards. Um, the very thing that kind of birthed uh, the horror genre in the first place is um, profoundly inadequate uh, for for talking about these things. Or um, and that's kind of whence whence the horror of it, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, the like profound inadequacy of our best efforts to um, bottle, measure, understand um, the the worst things about our reality um, and the most most inexplicable things. Yeah, yeah. I, there's something there's something about the enlightenment to me that like the fear shifts from maybe necessarily fear of the unknown to fear of things we can't control. Mm-hmm. Like the, like the fear of um, what might happen if Chernobyl actually fully melted down and like how many people would die off of that. Like that's something that, mm-hmm. that to go back to Frankenstein, that's something that we made, but we can't control. This is beyond us. Um, mm-hmm. And maybe because we're not in like right relationship with it is something that I a move I might make like theologically. Yeah. But yeah, like I I feel like uh, uh, like that's kind of the the end of the reason why like cabin in the woods is supposed to be kind of actually scary at the end is that like the the like elder gods are released, right? Like now mm-hmm. we've actually done something that is beyond our control. It was controlled. It was we had a weird way of controlling it, but it was controlled. But because we doubted it, because we doubted the system, now there's something that is out there that that will ruin us all because we didn't follow the rules. Like there's there is there's something with that. I'm not I'm not sure if I'm putting my finger on it, but that's what that's what's churning in my brain right now. Yeah. Hold on. I'm sorry. I'm going to sneeze. Go for it. What should you do? No. <laughs> no. no. I scared it off. I started talking and then I lost it. Uh, I hate that. Can I ask, this isn't going to stay in the podcast. Here's a weird question. Can you ever feel the, the sensation of needing to sneeze in your teeth? In your teeth? <laughs> yeah. Nobody. Okay. For, this is a really like normal thing for me. Like it's like, it's the entire front of my face all the way down to like my top teeth. My top teeth feel like they need to sneeze. Then if, if this was normal, then I was going to say that I won, but I guess Ian's right. I'm the weird one now. <laughs> a, wow. a little bit, a little bit, but you did, you did Um, to go back to the Wesley foundation. You summoned a memory. Um, I, uh, the Wesley Foundation at the University of Virginia does like weekly yoga. And uh, I attended one of their classes um, the previous week. And the first time I'd ever been to a yoga class in my life. But um, the instructor uh, was very focused on teeth for like maybe (laughs) a solid 10 minutes. She was like, really pay attention to your teeth. Focus attention on your teeth. That's not a normal yoga thing. Right. Feel the spaces between your teeth. Loosen your teeth in your jaw. Take your teeth out. Take your, remove your teeth. <laughs> and um, I was like, is this normal? But after um, consulting with uh, several other um, students in the department uh, who have a little more experience with uh, yoga classes, um, they told me no, no. In fact, that's weird. that's a little weird. Yeah. Um, 
but I appreciate her emphasis on teeth for spooky season. Teeth are very spooky. <laughs> it's very uh, Night Valian to me. Uh, oh, was- yes. Yeah. Oh, super Night Vale. Yeah. Oh, man. Which I, so I wrote a paper at Edinburgh on Night Vale. Um, the, I guess, I guess the sneeze thing is going to stay in because since we're on this topic, but I was writing <laughs> about science and religion in Night Vale and how, um, but I, I guess the second book, their second novel hadn't come out yet, which deals like really directly with like the smiling God and like coming at like this religious cult with uh, with science. Mm. But talking about how like you have like Carlos, the scientist who's out here, like trying to like science his way through the world. And then Night Vale just kind of like consistently defies any type of scientific explanation. Um and I, I don't remember what point I made in in the thing. I got an A on the paper if I had turned it in on time. But <laughs> it like uploaded a minute too late. And they're like, we're sorry. We can't do anything about it. Oh. Your lowered final grade. Anyway, uh, I, hate, I hate stuff like that. But also like I knew what the rules were. Um, yeah, like I, I find Nightville to be funny because like it is – it's really trying to deal with like the horror we feel around loss because Joseph Fink's dad had died before, right before our, or was in the process of dying as he was writing Night Vale. But like really the first couple of seasons of Night Vale of the things that are from his perspective are really trying to deal with like this like open chasm of like death and and what happens and how do we deal with the fact that like we're all gonna die one day and we all just walk around like that's normal right and that's where the weirdness of night veil comes from is that like there are all of these these strange things happening in night veil but they're normal to the people in night veil and like for us in our world like we all walk around knowing we're all just gonna not be here one day and how do we do that like how do we compartmentalize that um and like so i think about that all the time about like how people build a build belief in order to deal with and maybe and maybe that's like a really reductive idea of what of what believing means uh because that that strikes me as the like all beliefs are fairy tales and fables but like there there is a real way in which like the the theology and the cosmology that we work with are helping us deal with these kind of like these places where everything breaks down like around death or like around where things are just completely out of our control and overwhelming um yeah like i i don't know how to like because i have done zero religious studies <laughs> so i don't know how to like put that into sure. a framework or even if that's like a generous even even if there's a framework that deals with that in a generous way instead of a reductive way but it strikes me as there's there's something in that there's there's something to pull out of that yeah i um to borrow a uh, a term from the the tillich that um Ethan and I have been reading. Mm. Uh, I think it's that shock of non-being. Mm-hmm. Um, the the chasm that death represents um, that is able to I don't know. I, it cracks open the numinous. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, we have. Let me let me say more about that. That's a confusing thing to say. Let me unpack. What am I trying to say? Um, it's 
in a totally symbolizable world, um, death is the the one thing that's not symbolizable. You know, um, non-being mm. um, is uh, you know it, it's the shadow that kind of haunts um, our our symbolized daylit uh, world and. It's um, what I think suggests um, suggests the grotesque, suggests um, the existence of something of something numinous, of something um, you know. If there, if if death were not there, if there were no end, um, I think the it's that that adds this um awe-inspiring this kind of this wondrous this numinous um dimension to i don't know to life to art um so uh, i don't know i think uh maybe it's just that all the all the media i consume is like really boring if nobody dies it's like people have to die <laughs> to make it interesting um but uh death seems to me like um this rich uh maybe rich is the wrong word but kind of the necessary strike to crack the egg um, mm. to open up life um, in its kind of destruction um, in a truly interesting way. Um, I, so I feel like I may, I tried to explain it and made it less clear, but um, that's, I think. I follow what you mean though. Uh, which is then uh, is uh, part of the part of the reason that I struggle with like kind of popular conceptions of like heaven or or the afterlife. Though like the good place, spoilers for the good place. Uh, but at the end, like that's what the good good place finds, right? Is that like it, we can't just continue to exist forever, even if we have all of our when they when they go to like restructure the like not the good place as opposed to the bad place when they go to restructure the, the actual good place they find that like giving people exactly what they want for all eternity is just boring and what people actually need is like the ability to um resolve harms that have been done in order mm -hmm. to then feel like and then, like, have enough time uh, uh, of, a, like, a good time to make sure that you feel like you got the most out of existing. And then, like, then they're ready to move into non-existence. And it becomes much more, like, in, in kind of, like, a Buddhist peaceful, I guess, nirvana sense. Yeah, like, I, I what I struggle with, I think, out of, like, uh, death being this thing that, like, death is what makes life meaningful, which is like, is a, is a very simple way of saying something that is actually much more complex. Is that like, that leads us straight to the problem of suffering though. Is that like, well, we don't need children mm. to die to make life meaningful, right? Like that's not what we mean. We mean that like death at the end of, of a well-lived life gives you this like 
urgency to to like live your life well because it isn't going to go on for forever, right? And so that like that's that's kind of what I struggle with when I when I begin to like reflect on death and how we deal with death is that like almost immediately I come up against the stumbling block of like if death was part of a good universe then why do people die before their time? Um, and, and I don't know what to do with that. And I don't know, like, that's where um, horror stops being horror and starts being really just sad to me is like, if we're gonna, um, instead of instead of it being like, oh, here's like the high school cheerleader who is, who is getting off in a slasher film that like, I know all of this is fake and all of this is, is silly. But like, if somebody's actually like grieving the real loss of a child, well now, like now we're poking at something that is not, there's no camp involved in this. This is actually like real tragedy. And I don't know, like the only thing that I've seen that's, that's really dealt, like brought those two things together really well is Hill House where they're able to Mm. like, deal with tragedy but also like really there are ghosts there are really like supernatural things controlling stuff that like then leads to tragedy um yeah but like then also very honestly dealing with the emotions which makes hill house like less of a horror and more of something else um yeah i don't know mm-hmm. that i took that to a weird place <laughs> no no i love it um i think that kind of returns to um this distinction between uh like pre-enlightenment cosmology post-enlightenment cosmology right like Mm. the idea being that the enlightenment makes werewolves krakens sea monsters ghosts weird they're aberrations and um in that way, kind of fun, you know? It's not, I live in a dangerous world where the dead might come back and where my neighbor might be a vampire. And, you know, I live in a world where if I come across a vampire, that's kind of hot. Or, you know, <laughs> right. like, um, uh, they're they're strange, um, defeatable, um, out mm. of their element. Uh, the world is knowable, very human hours. Um, But the problem of evil, I think, um, makes doing horror really difficult um, for kind of the same reason. There was a, I uh, took a course on the problem of evil and theodicy uh, while I was at Liberty University. And um, I I spoke a little bit about this Mm -hmm. to Ethan uh, Mm -hmm. the other day. Um, while I was taking this course, I ended up reading a paper from, uh, a graduate student at Notre Dame at the time. This was like 2017. And, um, this paper had just been, uh, published and it was talking about, um, insects and the problem of evil, which is like, you know, bizarre. Um, that's what drew me in because, uh, the, the, I, you know, where to draw the line, on the problem of evil is difficult. You know, we can obviously recognize that um, human tragedy is a problem. That's evil. Um, bad things happening to children, premature death, um, old age, sickness, that's bad. Um, but, uh, you know, evil towards animals as well. Um, 
you know, the, the innocent fawn that dies in a forest fire, um, animal abuse, uh, you know, all of these are evils. But uh, this paper out of Notre Dame was kind of, uh, was talking about, well, why do we draw the line at animals? What about insects? Do insects not suffer? There's mass insect death, right? Like mm-hmm. there are more insects than like mammals by far. Exactly. And they all die a lot more. Yeah, yeah. Um, I There was a, a really striking quote from the story that I'm, I'm going to paraphrase, but it was, you know, insects leave lead brutal and short lives. Um, but there's kind of this uh, history, at least in the West, of um, treating not only animals, but uh, insects as well with like some sort of agency. Um, medieval courts used to, would try um, swarms of locusts for property destruction. Um, not, not as if you could, you know, like exact some political um, or not political, sorry, some uh, like judicial uh, recompense from them. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, it, there's this like recognition um, of insects as part of this, this order as capable of doing harm and um, of that harm as being, um, you know, the part of this judicial system, part of our ordered universe of our of our society but uh, the the kind of argument of the paper was that you know if we do include insects as part of the problem of evil if if every insect you splatter on your windshield um is part of our evil universe our universe is so incomprehensibly evil (laughs) that it's um hard to fathom how god might answer for that how god can account for every mosquito you smack, every, um, you know, uh, cicada who doesn't make it out of the ground in time and uh, dies. Uh, And um, in, in a world like that, in a world that's so irredeemably evil, it's hard to imagine um, the pleasure that, you uh, people ostensibly get uh, not everyone but the pleasure you ostensibly get from um horror stories because uh, it ceases to be i guess um a supernatural intervention in um an otherwise knowable world it turns out to be you know it's uh more evil um uh, even if um, a bizarre and unnatural evil um, in a truly just depraved and um, terrible world. Yeah. Wow. Dark. Dark. <laughs> I feel like yeah. I, I've been ruined. Like, because <laughs> yeah, like what do you, depressing. what do you do in the face of all that? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. But then, like, also, what do you do with, like, then, like, natural evil? Like, not even just, like, humans wantonly killing bugs, but, like, animals that depend on eating bugs to then survive. Like, what do you do with the food chain? Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Eating is evil, actually. And it, it is. But then, like, but then we also agree that, like, harming yourself is is 
not good so, and you must eat to survive and therefore not eating is self-harm so then like mm. there's no way out of it god uh, no <laughs> i'm back yeah. i'm back in the spiral <laughs> on that note we should wrap up that's true yes Friends, thanks for listening. This has been a mini show of What the Hell is a Pastor? We are Spanx, Reebok, The Dude, and Doc Midas. <laughs> and we will see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>What the Hell is a Pastor is a part of the Disruptive Disciples Podcast Network. Our theme song is written by Joe Schomel, performed by Joe Schomel, Ian Oriola, and Paul Oriola, and produced by Paul Oriola. Email us at wtheckisapastor at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash disruptive disciples, on Twitter at wthisapastor, and on Patreon at patreon.com slash wthiap, where you can get access to pillow talk, signed cards, episode suggestions, and some other things. Thanks for listening. And remember, friends, Ethan owes me all the money in his wallet. CJ, thanks again for ruining everything. <laughs> um, always happy to. I know. <laughs> <laughs>